Hello, and welcome to the 10th and last episode of Season 1 of Past Matters, the podcast that asks museums, galleries and historic houses what their most underrated items are. Now, I love, 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 love the location of this episode, which is Wadston Manor in Buckinghamshire. I first discovered this fairy tale like chateau, which is owned by the Rothschild family, last Christmas, and I can't recommend it enough to friends and podcast listeners. It's probably one of the most stunning historic houses in Britain, and the collection inside is exquisite. I've been twice now, and I don't think I've had remotely enough time to appreciate properly all the wonderful paintings, furnishings and sculptures in there, let alone the beautiful gardens. So really, this location fits in very well with the theme of this podcast. And indeed, the object discussed in this episode would be very easy to walk past without appreciating. It's a porcelain snuff box formerly owned by Madame de Pompadour, aka the chief mistress of Louis XV of France, and it is decorated with her much-adored dogs as well as other animals in her menagerie. Art, scandal and animals. What more could you want from a podcast episode, really? So do keep listening to hear Wadston Manor's fabulous Dr Mia Jackson, curator of decorative arts, reveal all about this little treasure. As ever, you can see a picture of the object on my website, ployradford.com Hello listeners and welcome to this latest episode of Past Matters. Uh, this one comes to you from the very beautiful Wadston Manor where I'm joined by curator Dr Mia Jackson. Hi Mia. Hello. So Mia, um, when people come to Wadston Manor, what do they, what do they normally gravitate towards when they come here? The 19th century interiors of Wadston Manor are crammed with uh, decorative arts and paintings and uh, it's sometimes quite difficult I think for the visitor to get their bearings. Um, Often the large paintings, the full-length portraits by the likes of uh, Gainsborough and Reynolds uh, attract the attention. People often look at paintings first when they go to a country house but as curator of decorative arts I'm very keen to get people to look at the furniture and the porcelain and the textiles and the carpets and so on and so forth so in that capacity as kind of a chief promoter of uh, decorative arts I want to talk to you today about um, a snuff box this snuff box is composed of six porcelain plaques that were made at the Sèvres manufactory, which are mounted in um, a gold cage. It's, a gold, it's, it's called a tabatière à cage, uh, which means that the, the plaques are held in place by this gold lining. The gold is, very, uh, is, is finely chased and if you if you have a look at it you can see that the uh the gold is in different colors so it's in three oh, colored wow, yes. gold um and that's uh, achieved by adding other metals to the alloys so in order to make it pinker you add uh, copper for example and this was really a kind of speciality of 18th century french goldsmiths who sort of perfected the art of uh, different coloured golds. So this must have been incredibly difficult to, to make? Yeah, I would, I would have thought so. Uh, I would have thought it would have taken quite a lot of close work and concentration. <laughs> <laughs> mm, and, and you say it's, it's from France, so what, what's kind of the provenance and who, who owned this originally? So the six plaques were 
made for Madame de Pompadour, um, who was the favourite of King Louis the Fifteenth. Louis the Fifteenth was known as Le Bien Aimé, um, so the beloved, and he was a great kind of patron of the arts and promoter of the arts, but in her own right, so was Madame de Pompadour. Um, and she's particularly well known for her patronage of the Sèvres porcelain manufactory, which she encouraged the king to acquire outright. So it became the royal porcelain manufactory. So would it have only made porcelain for the royal court then? Or? It made... No, uh, it, but they kind of had priority, oh, I would okay. say. Uh, and they were amongst the... They were the greatest patrons. And every uh, New Year's Day, there would be um, a sale of Sèvres porcelain at Versailles, and everybody would come from the factory and arrange all of the vases and plates and services and so on. It was also frequently used for diplomatic gifts. So if Louis the Fifteenth wanted to give a present to an ambassador or a foreign monarch, a service of Sèvres porcelain would often be the gift of choice. We've got one here, which is one of the most complete Sèvres porcelain services that was a gift from Louis XV to the Prince Starenberg, who was um, ambassador at Versailles from Vienna. So it's 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 one of the the great Sèvres services. It's got a uh, sort of four hundred pieces and would have, but that's only for twenty four diners. Wow, you've got good food. <laughs> you make me feel hungry. Yeah. <laughs> just thinking about this. Okay, let's return to the slightly Sorry. smaller, the smaller mm. snuff box though. So what what is being depicted on these plaques? Mm. So, um on the top of the snuff box are two little dogs who are playing with each other. Um and actually one of them looks to be getting a little bit angry with the other one. Um and these two dogs have traditionally been identified as Inez and Mimi who were Madame de Pompadour's dogs. We know that she had three dogs. We know the names of three of her dogs through prints because she had their portraits done and, in fact, carved on seals, on, on like, carnelian seals. And also their portraits painted. And she, so pretty dog-mad. Yeah. She made prints herself of her dogs. So these two dogs have traditionally been identified as Inez and, and Mimi. And Mimi is very recognisable, and we see her in other portraits of Madame de Pompadour. So the most famous and magnificent portrait of Madame de Pompadour is in Munich, but at the moment, at Wadston, we have a very high-quality replica of it on show in an exhibition called Madame de Pompadour in the Frame. This replica was made by the Factum Foundation, and the reason that we've got this exhibition at the moment is because the painting used to be owned by Ferdinand de Rothschild. And so we have the frame that he showed the painting in, but mm. we don't have the painting anymore. Mm. Um, uh, and Mimi is very recognisable in, in that. Inez, I, looking at, um, at, at all the various prints of dogs this morning <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um i'm not sure that it necessarily is inez and i wonder if it might be baby um and baby um is shown in a print after uh le Gay. and and i think that baby shows a, a a 
much more marked resemblance to the dog on the snuff box than the print of Inez. So it's two of Madame de Pompadour's dogs. <laughs> um, one of them is definitely Mimi. And the Mimi, other yeah. might be Bibi mm. or Inez. Um, and on the base um, is a rather wonderful portrait of a parrot and of a cockatoo. And those are also known from paintings. So all of the... Um, all of the Sèvres plaques, and there are six plaques in all, the two main ones at the top and the bottom, but then there are four around the side as well. They all correspond to either known paintings or 18th century descriptions of paintings by the artist Jean-Jacques Bachelier. And Bachelier was a, a favourite um, painter of Madame de Pompadour, and he painted these birds and dogs um, that were her pets for paintings that adorned her many different chateaux. And uh, some of the birds were painted as kind of overdoors, and some of the paintings still exist. So what's, it, what's an overdoor? Uh, so it's a it's a painting that goes over a door, basically. Oh, like that. Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Does what it says on the tin. Um, and um, uh, and uh, they are all quite exotic birds. Wow. In the 18th century, it was fashionable to, to keep exotic animals as mm. pets. Um, and we know that Madame de Pompadour was particularly fond of birds. Um, Is that because there was a lot of discovery going on at that time? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And birds were sort of a, they were sort of living art in a way. Um, and so you would build a beautiful aviary, such mm. as we have at Wadston, although of course ours is 19th century. And um, and you would keep all of these exotic and rare birds and you'd go and entertain yourself by having a look at them. There was a menagerie at Versailles from the 17th century, if not earlier. And exotic birds lived there, but also kind of exotic animals as well. Mm, I mean, they're very colourful birds. So yeah, yeah, they're it's very, very much beautiful, living art. They? Yeah. Yeah. I'm enjoying the cockatoo, cockatoo. Yeah, it's a cockatoo. <laughs> um, and uh, then I think the pink and blue one is a parrot. Oh, they're gorgeous. But just returning to uh, the, the two dogs, definitely mm-hmm. Mimi. So uh, Mimi is the one on the right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so she's black and tan. Yeah, she's a little ba- black and tan uh, King Charles Spaniel. And one of the things that's so wonderful is if you look very closely at their collars... Um, You see they've got little bells on their collars. Yeah. And also, uh, I think maybe you can see it better in the painting, but if you you really zoom in, you can see there are sort of three little dots. And we think that the three little dots represent the three castles that were Madame de Pompadour's coat of arms. And in fact, one of the remarkable survivals from the 18th century is... um, the day book of a marchand mercier. So a marchand mercier was somebody who sold uh, luxury objects and who combined different types of objects into uh, one new object. So for example, if you had uh, furniture that was mounted with porcelain plaques, you would have bought that from a marchand mercier. But he was also a kind of agent. He would source luxury items. Um, and so we have Lazare Duvaux was, was his name, and he was a Parisian marchand mercier. And we have his day book, so the, a book of the orders that he received and fulfilled. And in his day book, we know that Madame de Pompadour ordered collars, velvet collars for her dogs with gold plaques on which were inscribed their names, which bore her coat of arms which is exactly what we see these little doggies wearing here and they also had she also ordered porcelain bowls for them 
Oh, I'm sure she did. And I'm yeah. sure they had fancy little dog beds as they well. They did. In, in, and in fact, we know that that she bought a dog bed from a menuisier. So uh, Madame de Pompadour ordered from the menuisier, uh, Monsieur Guénon, for Versailles, she ordered a bed for her dogs. And 18th century dog beds are still known and still exist, and they're wonderful. They're basically kind of miniature, luxury 18th century furniture for dogs. They've got the little legs and the, yeah, the kind of curvature. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, they're fantastic. I think I've seen one for a f- pet ferret as well. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these animals were uh, were spoiled favourites as as people's pet dogs still are today mm. it's quite interesting because we always think that nowadays people are a bit more pet mad but clearly mm-hmm. this is this has been going on for centuries it's been going on for quite a long time yes definitely <laughs> so this is quite um you say it's king charles the breed uh the one on the right is definitely a king charles um and uh the one on the left depending on whether or not it's inez <laughs> or bibi um inez was havanese Mm. Um, and Baby was some kind of little spaniel as well. I'm more and more convinced that it's Baby rather than Inez. Mm. Yeah, the fur's much shorter. So yeah, and she's got magnificent ears. And she's the one looking very yeah. angry at being barked at. In this, yeah, in this definitely. Scene. She's got magnificent ears, whereas although Inez has got rather nice ears, they're not as big as that. And even if she'd had her ears trimmed mm. i don't see how they could have got quite that long yes yeah so i'm voting for baby <laughs> we think that the plaques were probably painted in um the late 1750s or maybe circa 1760 she died in 1764 so um the plaques obviously predate her um her death mm. um and we're pretty convinced that she commissioned them but the the box um, has got various marks on it, um, various kind of hallmarks and goldsmith's marks, um, which uh, tell us that it was made in 1772 to 3, so a few years after her, her death. Um, but when the man who was one of the valuers at her post-mortem sale died himself and his belongings were sold in a post-mortem sale Mm. um these plaques are very um precisely described um and at that point they weren't mounted in a gold box but he died in 1772 i think or 1773 um and uh we assume that roussel who is the goldsmith who made the box Mm. um acquired them at that point at his sale and mounted them up into a into a box so it would have had a different cage or frame yeah exactly I think so um so I think that had Madame de Pompadour had it as a snuff box it wouldn't have looked exactly like this but it would have looked very similar because obviously the the form of the of the plaques is such that it would Mm. have to be the same size and the same shape yeah, it must be quite hard to take them out of the frame, especially the ones that yeah. are curved on and, the um, end. Yeah, and, very... and we'd love to be able to take them out of the frame, but um, we can't. It's just, it's impossible. Mm. Um, because uh, quite often porcelain has marks on the back, on the areas that you can't see. Um, and sometimes those marks tell us something about ah. what's depicted. Yeah. So uh, Bachelier... Um, 
was quite intimately connected with the Sèvres porcelain manufactory. Mm. Um, we don't think that he painted these himself because he wasn't a porcelain painter. Mm. We think that probably, um, uh, and I was discussing this with my friend John Whitehead this morning, with that we think that it's got to be a painter who we all swoon over, who is called Armand Lenny, um, so Armand the Elder. And he's particularly renowned for being able to paint birds beautifully um, and uh, people fall into a swoon over his mm. painted birds. We've got a number of pieces in the collection here, okay. number of Sev porcelain vases that have painting by Armand. Okay. Um, and up until fairly recently, I think it wasn't um, uh, until the 1980s, so all of the Sev porcelain painters have got individual marks that mm. they put on the underside of vases to say, this is my work, I did this. Um, so it would be wonderful if we could see the reverse of these plaques and but we can't really, and, yeah. and find out who it was but up until uh, relatively recently the bird painter as he was then known wasn't identified by name but um, another friend Bernard Tragesco um, who's a dealer in Paris who specialises in um, in antique porcelain he, um, he managed to identify that it was Armand um, and he is he is just a wonderful painter and he has a very kind of uh, florid mark he does um, all Sev has got like the interlaced L's um, as a mark which mm. um, symbolise kind of Louis ah. um, and uh, Armand's mark is, is particularly sort of very mm. loopy good L's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what did people origin- originally think it was Bachelier and then uh, no so they knew that it was after B- Bachelier okay. um, uh, but Bachelier um, supplied drawings and paintings um, to the Sèvres porcelain painters to copy so Lemon would have used yeah his. so yeah. Armand would have used oh, yeah. um, mm. had it as a model um, and uh, like the actual the painting um, uh, of the dogs and also the painting of the cockatoo uh, mm. still exist um, and are on canvas and sort of signed and known to be by uh, Bachelier but another paint so um, it's quite interesting porcelain factories quite often have a really um, big stock of prints and drawings and paintings that were used as Mm. models and that's one topic that I'm really interested in sort of in the decorative arts in general like the transferability of uh, of motifs and um, and designs through the medium of uh, engravings or drawings. Well, they've done it very well. I mean, the detail is fantastic. It is. I mean, I think almost the detail on the box is uh, is better than the detail in the painting. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, because it's so picture. kind of minuscule, isn't it? It's so it's so tiny and detailed. So they must have had the really tiny brushes. Yeah. 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 Oh, um, wow. And and what's difficult as well, of course, when you're um, painting in porcelain, is that the colours look very different, raw, to what they look like fired. So you paint it first and then fire it. Yeah. yeah. So you'd have to you'd have to look pretty carefully. You'd you'd probably have what's known as a um, a nuancier or a um, a sample plate where um, 
each of the collars would be tested, shown oh. what they looked like when they were fired. Mm. Yeah. And then you'd have like all your numbered jars. And, and actually, I really love nuanciers. They're wonderful objects in themselves because they just show the range of colours that people were able to paint on porcelain at so that time. So is it literally just a plate with a with, rainbow with, of colours? Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and this, I mean, this one has got this lovely, is it kind of a jade green, I guess, yeah. border? around the the pictures of the animals yeah kind of appley green and uh yeah the variety of colors that the serve manufactory managed to achieve in in a relatively short space of time so the factory was set up at vincennes in the 1740s and uh so the factory had only been in, in existence for like fewer than 20 years um porcelain was it was hugely prized in the 18th century and in 18th century France in particular, but all over Europe. Um, and uh, up until the late 17th century, the only source of porcelain was to import it from the Far East, from China and Japan. And people became obsessed with it and they started, as, the, as trade with the Far East opened up, more and more porcelain got imported um, and lots of kings and princes kind of got porcelain sickness and started <laughs> collecting, like filling their palaces with porcelain. Mm. Um, and, uh, and of course, then as now, there was always a worry that if you um, imported too much from abroad, you weren't protecting um your home country's industry so everybody started trying to work out how to make porcelain and despite the fact that the Chinese had been able to make it for like nearly a thousand years it took was it took a while for them to work out the Germans got there first the Germans um why am I uh, not surprised um, <laughs> <laughs> the Germans managed to work out how to make hard paste porcelain um which is true porcelain um they managed to work out how to do it right at the beginning of the 18th century. But the French uh, made a sort of porcelain uh, substitute, which is called soft paste porcelain. And it's not true porcelain. It's um, It's got more silica. So true porcelain is a mixture of um, china stone and china clay or... Um, uh, and, and the china clay is uh, called kaolin. Um, and it wasn't until 1768, I think, that they discovered uh, deposits of china clay of kaolin in France near Limoges, which is why there's a whole kind of porcelain industry around oh. Limoges. Wow. Um, so this is made of soft paste porcelain, which is mm. um, which is a different substance, but imitates um, uh hard paste porcelain beautifully and one of the things about soft paste porcelain is um because it's uh, fired at a comparatively lower temperature though it's still sort of wildly high mm. um which is amazing <laughs> in itself because they were firing these kilns using um wood and um and they had obviously they didn't have um electronically controlled kilns <laughs> so it's it's a real sort of miracle of uh of production that yeah. they were able to get the kilns hot enough but um with soft paste porcelain there's this sort of wonderful fusing of uh the colors of um of the painting with the glaze and it sort of sinks into the porcelain whereas with um hard paste porcelain the 
the enamel colours are painted over the glaze and so they kind of stand slightly proud of mm. the um of the glaze. It's 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 a sort of um it's a really kind of nerdy um <laughs> <laughs> it's a real kind of nerdy thing that people um get obsessed with. But yes, the soft paste porcelain, so beautiful fusion of, of mm. colours with glaze and so on. Um, so, so with the the hard the hard porcelain, mm-hmm. the paint was put on after. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, so um, yeah. Uh, overglaze. Whereas uh, this, the glaze and but the colours. Like the colours on this are fantastic. They are. They're really beautiful. And mm-hmm. one of the wonderful things about 18th century porcelain is it reminds us just how colourful um, uh, the 18th century was. So I think quite often um, because people are used to seeing um, objects that were dyed with natural dyes and have subsequently faded. Mm. They think that the 18th century was kind of all subtle sort of duck egg blues and various shades of brown. But in fact, it was a riot of colour. Mm. Um, uh, the the carpets, the um, wall silks, the tapestries, the furniture, it was... It was all so colourful. Wow. Um, and porcelain, um, because porcelain doesn't fade over time, unlike all of these other materials, it reminds us just how colourful yeah. that that world was. That's amazing. Well, it's kind of like um, sort of uh, Roman and Greek uh, statues, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because they're all white now. We see yeah, everything we, was beautiful yeah, and white, but yeah. actually they were so colourful as yeah, well. Absolutely. Exactly the same. Um, uh, so... Yeah, it's it's quite interesting because, you know, uh, we at Wadston have got a collection that is remarkable in terms of how it has been protected from light. Because Alistair Rothschild, who acquired this box, was one of the sort of the first people to really understand the damage that light can do to textiles and uh, mm. woods and so on. And so with our marquetry furniture... Um, uh, the colours obviously fade so um, uh, lots of objects have got kind of floral marquetry and those um, those bouquets would have been naturalistically coloured so the leaves would have been green the flowers would have been all different colours and so mm. on and so forth but now they're kind of different mm. shades of brown but our textiles um, have survived particularly well thanks to Alice who um, who protected them from light covering them when they weren't in use closing blinds closing curtains um, and, wh- and when uh, when did Alice live uh, she died in 1922 um, mm. uh, and she bought this box in uh, 1904 she inherited Wadston from her brother Ferdinand who built it in um, 1898 Mm. Um, so her reign at Wadston was um, a good uh, 24 years. And very good for preserving historic Very good for, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, to go back, so this wasn't, as you said, this wasn't the original, the, the frame box that yeah. this was in. Why would why would someone have removed the plaques from the original? I don't know. Uh, it's a, That's a good question. It's um, were the plaques never mounted into a box or mm. um, were they mounted into a box um, which was uh, the the theoretically what's great about the tabatiera cage is that the um, the plaques could be replaced with other plaques. So, for example, um, so if you this, get bored, you can yeah, put so a this, new picture. So, so this kind of cage <laughs> idea, yeah. um, 
uh, allows you to have a box with porcelain plaques or to have like uh, miniature paintings under glass or to have lacquer panels for example um so maybe maybe there was another tabatier acage and they decided just to sell the plaques and keep the box and mount something else in it or maybe it was never mounted maybe she'd never got around to having it made into a box but i think that's probably quite unlikely um or maybe the the other box got damaged and i don't know I don't oh, know. I just think she's so rich that she couldn't have, you know, uh, the, the frame for all of all of. No, the absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> Doesn't but, need to swap them in and out. <laughs> uh, but we don't know. We don't know what state it was in uh, at her death because it doesn't. It doesn't appear. Um, but it's mm. it's it's got to be for her because it's so recognisably her animals <laughs> in uh, her material <laughs> yes yes and it was definitely snuff that would have been kept in something like i think so sweets yeah or something um else. uh sweet boxes tend to be a little bit bigger and patch boxes which are where you would keep your um little velvet um beauty spots to stick on your face Ooh. um they tend to have a mirror in the top ah okay wow. so it's probably a snuff box snuff is of, of course um uh powdered tobacco mm-hmm. uh which you would sniff <laughs> <laughs> and it was very fashionable I it was it <laughs> was absolutely everybody would have um a snuff box and some snuff oh wow well, i'm so thrilled we got to talk about a snuff box today because i've just been to the vna and seen their amazing seen their wonderful snuff collection. boxes yes, yeah they're so beautiful yeah for snuff box fans um <laughs> there are going to be um uh, a number of uh well pretty much all of ours are going to be on display in our new treasury which mm. opens in September um, and uh, the Rothschilds were particularly uh, keen on collecting snuff boxes they're sort of small beautiful objects which um, are made with huge skill um, yeah. uh, and very popular in 18th century France and as we know the Rothschilds loved 18th century France <laughs> like all right thinking people um, <laughs> and, um, bold statement yeah. <laughs> and um, but other as you say the V&A has a wonderful collection of snuff box and the Wallace collection as well mm. um, has a great display of snuff boxes too which were collected around the same time as mm. ours were it must be quite, because they are so beautiful, but because mm. they're small, they must be quite easy. You must be worried that visitors will walk straight past when you really want exactly. to focus on the detail. So hopefully with the new uh, treasury, which is going to be in a small room, but with densely packed uh, cases, um, the fact that these objects are in cases will allow the visitor to see them much more closely than if they were sort of on open display. Or so, be, um, magnifying glasses yeah, as absolutely. Well, so so people can uh, can really sort of get up close to these um, to these objects and see this wonderful snuff box. I'm very excited about it going um, on display again because I don't think it's been on display for um, a oh. good few years. And when does that exhibition or permanent gallery, I guess, open? It's going to be the eighth of September. That's fantastic. This year. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Mia. You're very welcome. <laughs> and that sadly concludes season one of Past Matters. 
thank you everyone who has listened, has uh, shown their support, and obviously all the locations that participated in this season. Thank you, thank you so much for letting me come and talk to your experts and handle some of your fabulous objects. Um, Please do give me feedback on what you thought of the season via social media or my website, ployradford.com and any ideas for where I should go for season two will be very welcome as well. Thank you again for listening and hope to welcome you back to listen to season two next year.